We did that in a bit of a different order, but we want to say good morning, happy Mother's Day. It is Daniel Delwood's birthday, and it is my dog Raptor's birthday, just so everyone knows. <laughs> we have been studying the book of Acts, and we're close to concluding. We're going to conclude this month, we think. And we've been studying the book of Acts in a series that we have called The Actions of the Apostles by the Holy Spirit. We have seen the Holy Spirit do tremendous things over 30 years in this letter. We haven't been studying it for 30 years. We have seen the apostles who were chosen by God and commissioned to be witnesses by Jesus himself to go and share the good news of the gospel of grace in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have seen Saul, who we know as Paul, go from opponent to Christianity to the most effective evangelist in history, humanly speaking. And over the past two months or so, we have been studying about Paul's detainment and the accusations against Paul that have afforded Paul to have meetings with some of the most influential governors and kings of this time period all while heading towards Rome. Paul, under capture again, is being transported there as a prisoner, which he did not have to do. He could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. But because he did, he is headed to Rome by boat, which last week we heard from Karen about the storm that Paul and others had to contend with on this voyage. Today we will unpack what happened to them as they ran ashore, shipwrecked, but God was involved in all of it. And Paul's faith, not the amount of faith, but the object of his faith made all the difference. Now, as I studied and studied this passage and I listened to some of my peers preach on this specific passage, I noticed something. A lot of people want to make this passage about Paul and about his leadership. And the truth is, leadership's important. Leadership, I totally agree that leadership is a big deal. It's a big deal in our households. It's a big deal in our cities. It's a big deal in companies, in our schools, in our county, in our state, in our country, and beyond. But I am struck by the fact that Paul was not leading as much as he was following what the Lord had told him to be true. So I just want to preface this passage that we're going to study today that you've heard read with a psalm and a proverb. I've been spending a lot of time in the psalms and the proverbs and just reading about these, this, these worship psalms and these uh, Proverbs of Wisdom. And I'm going to read this because I think that these, the psalm and this proverb matter to us as much today in the Church of the Living God in 2023 as they did when they were written many, many years ago. So here's what it says. Psalm 33, verse 10. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm for forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. That's the psalm. Here's the proverb. Whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life. But whoever ignores correction leads others astray. So with that psalm and that proverb, I'd like us to now study about the shipwreck which Paul and the crew of sailors, soldiers, and prisoners numbering 276 will endure. Here's what it says in verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. 
They took soundings and found that the water was about 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. So this is a large crew. Prisoners and the ship had been going through all of this storm. They were on the 14th night of being thrown off course since they left the shore of Crete. And these sailors who were sailors, like they sailed for a living, sensed that the land was approaching at midnight, probably in the dead of night. They probably could hear waves crashing against the land. They took soundings, which was essentially a rope with a weight attached at the bottom to measure how deep or shallow the water beneath them actually was. And as they kept on measuring, they noticed that they were getting closer and closer to land as the depth was becoming less and less. Verse 29, fearing that we, Luke says, would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. These sailors, which included Paul and Luke, were very worried that they were about to crash into the rocks. And so they dropped multiple anchors attempting to stop the forward progression of the ship towards the land and the probable rocks. And Luke notes that they prayed for daylight. They did this because they were unable to see what they were dealing with, hoping that they'd be able to then navigate their situation with less ignorance. It's an interesting prayer, daylight. It's interesting that these sailors, who were essentially up a creek without a paddle, if you will, were so worried that they began to pray. This makes me think of the practical, all right? So I'm going to remind many of us, and some of us perhaps weren't even alive when this happened, but I became a Christian on June 13th, 2001. June 13th, 2001. Y'all remember what happened 88 days later? 9-11. Where religious extremists hijacked multiple commercial airplanes and crashed them into the Twin Towers in New York, one into the Pentagon, one into a field in rural Pennsylvania, which was assumed to be headed for the White House, until some heroic Americans took it upon themselves to then take control back of the plane from the terrorists. 2,977 innocent Americans perished because of the hatred of these terrorists. I remember watching this tragedy unfold on TV, do you? Do you remember like hearing about this and then turning on the TV? And the country essentially stopped Flights were canceled. People didn't seem to do much that day other than watch the news. And then as the recovery happened in the Twin Towers especially, I believe that even the news broadcasts began to point towards prayer to God, which doesn't happen now because it might offend somebody. Our nation prayed a lot. After September 11th, we prayed for those still lost in the rubble. We prayed that God would protect our country. We prayed for those affected by this awful tragedy that America was dealing with. We prayed until we didn't. And that time of reliance and dependence and acknowledgement of God waned, like it does for everyone who doesn't really believe that Christ's grace is sufficient. And I think in time of crisis, people pray as if to say, well, since I am completely unable to control the situation, maybe I'll acknowledge the one in this instance that perhaps maybe has some type of control. But generally, the public is noncommittal, not wanting to be too religious. But if they can say a little prayer or possibly wink at God, then perhaps he'll do something we want. 
But if the circumstance doesn't pan out the way we'd prefer, we either then say, well, see, I told you he wasn't real. Or if we do believe he exists, we blame him for not doing what we wanted. And then we assume his character is bad or evil because he hasn't done what we consider good and righteous. This is a larger problem than I think that we tend to talk about in the church. Yet the scriptures speak to this regarding those who perhaps, I'm going to use a term that isn't biblical, but I'm going to use it anyway, kind of believe. When Jesus shares the parable of the soils in which we call them, he's speaking to this. He says, listen, in Mark 4, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain again. It's kind of a sad reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. And not only does Jesus share this parable explaining what happens when people share the word with people and and people for a moment believe, But Jesus actually explains what he meant by this parable, which he doesn't always do in the scriptures. So I appreciate this. Later on in Mark 4, Jesus says, the the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and once receive it with joy. But since they have no root... They last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. This is the world that we're dealing with, one that looks at Christ's sacrifice and salvation, in some cases, as a fad or as an option, rather than as the sole means of right standing before God. And for some, they believe until they don't. They believe until they count the cost. They believe until they realize that being a follower of Jesus is all-encompassing, and it's not a hobby. They believe until the truth of God's word reveals their unwillingness to find their identity in Christ. And instead, following him really just becomes us asking Jesus to follow us. So how are we, church, praying for daylight in God's intervention? Are we praying out of our own selfish desires? Or are are we trying to protect oneself from difficulties? Or are we praying for God's will to be done and for him to get the glory? And so these sailors, they begin to pray. But you know how I know that some were just paying lip service to the idea of being dependent upon God? Because of what Luke writes next. Verse 30. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. So possibly the sailors who prayed that God would supernaturally intervene now are doing what most of us do and wanted to take control and get the situation into our own hands. Not only were they hedging their bets, but they were doing it in secret, as if to not make known their lack of faith. This, let me be real, church, this is the biggest problem I have. 
I believe, but I want to control stuff. Now, to be fair, I do think I believe in private as well. And yet I still act the fool. I still get angry. I still say things I shouldn't. I still have plenty of opportunities to be intimate with God through repentance, which as my dear brother and birthday boy Daniel pointed out the other day, is not just turning from sin, but it's turning to God. That is what repentance is. So what does Paul say? Verse 31, then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Wow, this just got really real. Like the one thing that in theory could naturally save them in this case, in case the ship gets destroyed, you now have let go. Why? From a natural perspective, it was because attempting to remove as much excess weight as possible with the hope that it would then give the ship a chance to be less grounded and go farther up the beach if they ran into the beach. But in order to do this, they had to release the one natural lifeline they, that could save some of them in the hope that they could save all by running the boat ashore. But from a spiritual perspective, that was natural. What about the spiritual perspective? Paul knew what the Lord had said to him through the angel. We read it last week. In the middle of the storm, the sailors were losing hope. They were losing courage. And here's what it says, chapter 27, verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. <laughs> then you would have spared yourselves this damage. I, I know he wasn't saying I told you so, but he was kind of saying I told you so. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Paul believed and knew the Lord's promise would come to fruition. So doing what they were doing by removing the lifeboats to save weight wasn't as crazy as it seemed. If Paul truly believed God and followed by faith what God had told him. But this wasn't just by the angel in the middle of the storm. But all the way back in chapter 23, after Paul had been taken into some barracks because of his testimony before the Sanhedrin, here is what Paul experienced. Verse, chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. Remember Jesus, he died, he resurrected, and now he's standing before Paul. And he said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you also, you must also testify in Rome. Paul had two instances where the Lord through supernatural means had communicated with him and told them that he would venture on to Rome. And in this instance, all aboard would also make it alive to the island. To be totally honest, I feel like this didn't take that kind of uh, faith that most of us think we need to have in order to please God. The crazy Hail Marys in life, the jumping out of an airplane without parachute kind of faith that some of us 
suppose are required of us. This was not about the amount of faith that Paul had had. Paul had been communicated with by the Lord twice, telling him and reassuring him that he would make it to Rome. That doesn't seem to require a lot of faith. It just requires Paul's object of faith to be in the one who's speaking to him. Tim Keller, as I like to put it, the smarter Tim than me, put it this way. Imagine you were on a high cliff and you lose your footing and you begin to fall. Just beside you is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It is your only hope and seems more than strong enough. But how can it save you? If you're certain the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If instead your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and you grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Uh, 2020. Remember that year? Some of us want to forget. Uh, 2020, we, had, we were living, and some of you have heard the story, and I apologize, but it's Mother's Day, so we got guests, so haha. 2020, we were living in a house that we were renting down the street, and it was something like our ninth residence in 11 years. Aaron's not in here to correct me, but I think it was like that. And it was a lot. And we had kept moving because what happened was people kept going, wow, I've made how much money on my property? Oh, I'm going to sell it. So we'd rent for a year or two, and then they'd sell it, and then we'd have to move. And this kept happening over and over and over again. And I remember, and I, I, I got to be really honest about why. For years, I was like, Lord, I just want to own a house. And I feel like that's a lot of us. I just want to own a house. I just want to own in Santa Clara. I just want to be here. I just want to be rooted in this area. And, and I prayed for this. But to be totally honest, I think I prayed for this with the hope that I could keep up with the Joneses. Not so much because I just wanted to stop having to move every few years. And, you know, how the world was in 2019, it didn't look like purchasing a house in the Bay Area was going to happen. But I also didn't feel led in any way to leave this area and do what a lot of people do. Oh, I can find a job somewhere else. I can get a place somewhere else. It'll be better. Grass is always greener until it isn't. And so as I prayed, I remember it was February of 2020. The world was normal then, or normal-ish. And I remember... I, I was, there was the fear of the people that owned the place we were living in. There was the possibility that they might sell it. We had just moved in not too long before. And I just was like, come on. And I remember just feeling this peace and praying and saying, Lord, you know what? We will continue to rent if this is where you've called us because we believe that you've got a work to do through Church of the Valley, through the work of your spirit and through the gospel being proclaimed. And so that's fine. We'll just continue to rent. That's fine. That was my prayer. Fast forward, March gets a little awkward. Um, we, all, we all really appreciate our homes a few, you know, a few weeks after March because we're in them all the time. And I remember I was, uh, there was a family that appreciates the ministry that I've had for whatever reason. And I remember uh, I get a text and like, hey, can we FaceTime? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So we, we FaceTime and it's August. And we're talking, and, and this person says to me, he says, uh, you know, my family and I have been praying uh, actually for quite a while 
uh, I believe it was since February. And we've been praying and we've just kind of felt led to, uh, if you guys are willing to obey the Lord in this leading to help you purchase a house. And it would be kind of a 50-50. I'm not going to give you all the specifics, but it'd be kind of a 50-50 thing. And we'd help you get into the house and you'd pay the mortgage and we'll do all that. And we own half and you own half and all that. And I'm, other than crying, <laughs> I've got a lot of emotions in this because I'm not exactly sure, like, I don't deserve this. And, and every time I tell the stories, oh, no, you deserve it. I do not deserve it. Do not tell me after the service. No, 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 you deserve I do. I deserve death, church. And God was stirring something in a family that they were feeling led to obey. And so anyway, long story shorter, too late. We started to look at houses and the first house we looked at, it got sold as we were looking at it. We're like, all right, guess not that one. And then we looked at another house and the real estate, really great guy, we're having a conversation and he goes, oh, I have friends who live next door. And they're a part of a Bible study at a church that I'm part of. And I was like, oh, really? I'm, I, I kind of know Christians in the Bay Area. What are their names? And he's like, oh, well, uh, Hiram and Chris. And I was like, oh, yeah, they're, uh, before COVID started, they were at our church. And we're like, oh, okay. And so the real estate agent and Hiram talked, and Hiram calls the owner of the house who he grew up with because the owner had grown up in that house, and Hiram had grown up in the house, and basically said, you've got to sell it to the Rileys. And... Uh, they sold it to the Rileys and we got to purchase this house and we got to move into this house and Hiram's currently serving our toddlers in the, so high five him after the service. Uh, but here's, here's, the, here's the point. I share that story to say that I stopped trying to control everything. And I share that story to remind you and myself that we didn't earn that house nor did we do anything to deserve it financially but God, but God. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Paul, being aware of what it has been like on the ship for these past two weeks, urges the sailors and the soldiers to eat as they had been working hard to keep the boat afloat. <sighs> Paul trusted that they would make it, as the angel had told him, but he also knew that human effort was involved. God's will would be done, but that didn't mean that Paul or others could just check out and it would be done for them. See, God's will will be done using mankind's effort. And mankind has a responsibility. And so Paul, knowing this, told the soldiers to eat and gain their strength. Verse 35. After he had said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and he began to eat and they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Now this sounds a lot like communion. And spoiler, we're going to have communion after the sermon. But that's not necessarily what this is. There was no wine that was included, no direct explanation of Jesus' sacrificing his body in which the bread represents. But Paul, always with God on his mind, knew that any and all sustenance that was provided was provided by the Lord. And so Paul broke the bread and he gave thanks to God. 
in the middle of the sea, in the middle of a storm, in the middle of uncertainty, because Paul knew that no matter the circumstances, his God is so good and he is faithful to keep his promises. Verse 37, altogether there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. And Luke documents just how many were on board and how many the Lord will save, even though the boat will be destroyed as they run aground. But in order to be even lighter, after they had shared a thankful meal, they dumped what was left of the grain so they could lighten their load. Verse 39, when daylight came, they prayed for it. Uh, it tends to come, but yeah, unless you're in Alaska in the winter. They did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. These are experienced sailors. And they did all they could to create an opportunity to run aground on the sandy beach, which in human terms, which we tend to go towards, in human terms, we can be, well, they did this. But I'd contend that God used their experience and know-how and helped them along as they created this opportunity to land on the beach. But look what happens. Verse 41, but the ship struck a sandbar, rut row, and ran aground. The bow, the bow, the bow, the bow struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The soldiers, who were a part of the Roman Empire, had the orders that if any prisoner had the chance of escape and could not be imprisoned, that the soldiers were to kill them. But the centurion, who seemed to at least believe Paul, wanted to spare Paul's life. So he ordered those on the ship who were able to swim to do just that by swimming to the shore. Verse 44, the rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. You know, this reminds me a bit of a movie and it reminds me a bit of a meme that I saw. Are you familiar with this? That's Jack and Rose, Titanic. There was room on the, on the door for the record, okay? But everyone got to land. Everyone got to land. But God had done what he said that he would do. Each of these people on this ship made it to land, which we now know as Malta or St. Paul's Bay. So what do we take away from this, church? Well, I'll conclude where I started. I don't think Luke shared this because we need leadership hacks. I think Luke's admission of this experience and how it was written was to exalt God's faithfulness to come through on his promises and Paul's obedience to follow God at his word. If only there was an application for us. See, God's will and glory are displayed when his people trust him at his word. So it's not just, oh, that's better for us, but it brings glory to God when we obey him at his word. And so I don't know what that means for each of you individually. But as a church community, 
We are to proclaim and testify to what God has done in our lives and to be an ambassador, to represent the king, making known of his offer of grace to each and every one of us. So let me end where I started. Psalm 33, 10, 11. It might mean something different to us now. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm for forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. And the proverb says, whoever heeds discipline shows the way to life, but whoever ignores correction leads others astray. So we're going to transition to communion in just a moment, but I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up to get prepared. And I'm going to invite each of you to get prepared spiritually and emotionally to partake, if you will, in what's known as the Lord's Supper. But only if you identify with Jesus's life, death, and resurrection as your sole means of right standing before God. See, we have an open table. That means that if you're a believer and you're, you don't attend this church regularly, that's fine, please, come partake. We, we, don't, we don't check, we don't care. But if you haven't truly trusted what Christ has done, this ends up just being snack for you, and it's not that tasty. Otherwise, maybe if you haven't found Jesus as your sole means of right standing before God, maybe you'd take this time to reflect as we play the music, as people come up and they partake in communion. Perhaps you would then think about what you are putting your trust in and perhaps repent if it isn't Jesus Christ and his finished work. Maybe change your mind, maybe change your direction, maybe turn from sin and turn to God. Communion, though, is for remembering what the Lord has done for us. And today's Mother's Day, I don't want to forget that, and I'm not sure how each of you view this holiday, but it tends to be a day where I remember my mom, Alona Inez Hyen, who passed away in 1989 when I was eight years old. So remembering that on this day, not the happiest of memories. Not because she wasn't a great mom or didn't love me more than I ever deserved, which most moms do for their children but because I lost her at such a young age and it scarred me and affected me, it changed me. So when Mother's Day comes around, I tend to be more emotional than I am usually, either by getting the feels or completely shutting any emotions out. But here's the thing about Mother's Day. While my mom will never be replaced, and I will never get my childhood, teenage years, early adult life back with my mom. I am so, so, so grateful to God that my children have the mom that they do. And instead of being angry at God like I was for decades, I give him praise and honor and glory on this day, remembering not only did my mom love me, but by God's grace alone, I believe that she loved him as well. So I spend this life not just looking forward to heaven, because perhaps some of my loved ones that I lost in this life will be there. I look forward to heaven because my Savior, my Lord, my salvation, Jesus Christ, will be there to meet me. And for the believer, we remember during this ordinance, known as communion, that Jesus made a way for you and I not to get what we deserve, he made a way for you and I, by grace, to get what we don't deserve, 
through him giving us faith to believe in his grace to be right before God, to follow him in gratitude by trusting him at his word. And that is what we practice today. This is not all the obedience that a Christian ought to have. This is a symbol of a life lived as a Christian, and we get to come to the table celebrating Jesus and his sacrifice.